Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to guest episode 104 of Good Humans Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today is a very, very special episode with the beautiful Candice Mama. A big thank you if it's your first time tuning in today. Make sure you go and hit that like or subscribe button if you do enjoy today's episode. Check out the rest of our catalog. There is some amazing stories that you can learn so much from. So if you're listening and you enjoyed the episode, leave us a five-star rating, tell a friend about it, and yeah, let's get this podcast to as many years as possible because there's so much value, especially in this episode. A massive thank you to our sponsors, Drink A Rapper, The Brain Drink. I bloody love these guys. They've been looking after this podcast for quite some time, and I'm actually about to open one, so listen to this. There we go. Nice brain performance drink getting ready for me. About to edit this podcast, actually, but yeah, big thank you to Drink a Rapper. They always support this podcast. They're so aligned with what we do. So it's a brain performance drink, short-term brain performance, long-term brain health. It's all done by neuroscientists. So there's so much clinical research that's gone into know and prove that this product works. If you head over to their website, drinkarepper.com, you can use the code GOODHUMAN for a huge 25% off all their products. Go take care of your brain. Tag us on Instagram if you enjoy it, Drink a Rapper. And yeah, we'd love to know all about it. Also, if you do like the sort of things that we talk about with the Good Human Factory and you're all about spreading positive mental health energy in your community and just making the people around you feel grateful, feel happy, and yeah, take better care of their mental health, make sure you go over to thegoodhumanfactory.com. Check out our website. There's a bunch of really cool information about our workshops, our ambassadors, the 1% Club, and most importantly, our merchandise. If you want to check out the new merch we have for winter, it's absolutely incredible. There's so much warm um, so many warm hoodies on there, trackies, and a whole new range of shirts that I would love if you can go check out. Use the code podcast and you do get a big 25% off all of our merch. And I would love you very much if you did. So make sure you tag us on Instagram at the Good Human Factory if you like the merch. All right, today's episode, Candice. Wow. I met Candice uh, a few months ago at the Humankind Summit down in Sydney where I was lucky enough to speak at. And so was Candice. And I got to know her mostly at the after party. I missed her talk, but I'd heard around the grapevine about this incredible lady I need to meet, Candice. Um, and at the after party, we got talking and spent quite a lot of time really, yeah, connecting. And it was a special moment. And we agreed, yeah, let's get you on the podcast. Um, a few months later, she sent me a message and she was like, hey, I'm in Byron Bay. Come down. Let's do this potty. So I was lucky enough to go catch up with her. And wow, she's got one of the most incredible stories ever. So Candice grew up in South Africa. Um she has black skin and yeah, because of that, she grew up in 1991. Well, she was born in 1991 and was right around the time when the apartheid movement was happening in South Africa. 
her dad was a big activist trying to break down um, the apartheid movement and was unfortunately murdered when she was about nine months old. Her story is just phenomenal, the way that she can get in touch with how she felt going through that as a child, how it really tore her apart, and then how she took back a bit of control and realized, you know what, I can't let this guy kill my dad and also me. I need to take back control. She has such great self-awareness, and then her story is just so powerful. She talks about the fact that she got a chance to meet the man who murdered her father. Her and her family got to go and see him in prison, um, and they all forgave him. It's just one of the most beautiful stories you'll ever hear. It's super, super um, emotional at times. So beware. There is mentions of um, poor mental health. There is mentions of murder. And yeah, it is quite a heavy episode, but it is just so beautiful the way that Candace has come through all these heartaches in her life and is now the most vibrant, beautiful, kind, oh, humble, present humans you will ever, ever hear. So let's jump into today's podcast. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Candice Mama. How are you going, Candice? Oh my gosh, Cooper. I'm so excited to be doing this. Since we last met, I've been so excited. I'm like, I've got to hook up with Coops. Like, I've got to get this done. No. <laughs> oh, you're the best. I um, Yeah, we met at Humankind. What, probably would have been a month ago now. Yeah. About a month ago. Um, you spoke at the event. You're the co-CEO of AIM, the charity which the event was raising money for. Yeah. We had a great time. We didn't really get to meet that much at the event, but then at the after party, yeah. our good friend Herman, who threw the event, John Winning, who's been a guest on this podcast as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had an after party and yeah, we got to connect and had such a good time. And you were like, yeah, I'll come on the podcast. And we tried to do it the next day, but I didn't have a hangover, but yeah. I don't think you would, you might've had a little hangover. Did you drink? I mean, I do drink, but I didn't have a hangover. Yeah, It was but, just a yeah. late night. We it was get, a late, we, we left I wanted late. to say, it was definitely, I think, the duration oh, of, the week. especially because, you know, John's got the special way of creating an atmosphere. So I don't think any of us knew what time it was <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> when we left. We were like, whoa, yeah, yeah. so much sunshine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. But that was, uh, that was really good fun. But we spoke down, we're like, yeah. we've got to do this podcast. And we tried yeah. to do it the next day. Yeah. Didn't work. Um, you flew back to South Africa. But here you are in the beautiful Byron Bay for a little event. And you're like, hey, I'm close. Can you get down here? And I was like, absolutely, I can yeah. to come and chat to you. So good to see you again. Thank you for having me, really. I've seen some of the episodes and I'm such a fan of your work. So I'm happy to be here. I, I can't wait yeah. to get to know your story because uh, Herman did mention it briefly. And I didn't really get to see too much of you at Humankind. So this is a great chance to get to know you a bit better. Yeah. So the first question I do open Good Humans podcast with is for similar for everyone. Yeah. What are you grateful for right now? Wow, I mean, I'm in Byron Bay at the moment, you know, I mean, there's so much to be grateful for. I'm grateful to be doing what I love. I'm grateful to be in Australia um, and I'm grateful for life, genuinely grateful for life. And it's not something I could always say. So it's beautiful that I get to say that now. Mm. Well, yeah. it's nice to be able to reflect on that. And I'm very excited to get to know your story because you click on your Instagram. I told you this before. I didn't do too much research because I know your story. Probably the more research I did, the more like lost I would get in the depth of your story. It seems like you look on your Instagram and there's all these different most influential women in the world from different organizations. So let's get to know why, why the hell you're so influential. <laughs> 
goodness, Cooper, if you can tell me this, then you know what, you're becoming my bestie. Um, no, it's really, uh, I think in life, we have so many choices that we get to make, right? Whereby we have these detours that we face, and I'm no different in that way. I experienced a lot of challenges growing up. So what ended up happening was, I grew up in South Africa, yeah. Johannesburg, right? And uh I mean, apartheid was a very massive factor in almost every South African's life. So in some ways, I feel like my story is reflective of the country's history. Mm. So what happened to me was when I was nine months old, unfortunately, my father was brutally murdered by an apartheid assassin. By Can the you name. explain real quickly yeah. apartheid? Just be, Please, I've yeah. spoken to um, Tom Carroll, actually, the yes. processor. I've got to send you the link because he mm. spoke to Nelson Mandela and boycotted going to... Um, to the events in South Africa mm. in support of, yeah, being against apartheid. Yeah, do you want to explain that? Sorry to cut Please, your story yes. off, but I think it'll um, give context because I don't think a lot of people would fully understand what the apartheid was. Absolutely, and thank you for giving me that opportunity. So apartheid as a team by the world in many ways and how history started to tell the story is simply a system of division. So how people understand it is, oh, white people lived here, black people lived here, right? Very much like slavery in America. However, what people don't understand, and that's how I define apartheid, it was a war. And it was a war that attacked every part of society. So it was a financial war. It was a property and land war. It was a human war. And it was such a dehumanizing system that in during that period, what would happen is the minority had control of the majority in the country. So the only way to do that is by firstly building land in a way that segregates completely so black people colored people indian people were all based in different places and they were ranked according to their race black being the lowest you could be and so people would have to carry a card if they were domestic workers or if that's into white areas and it was called a dom pass and so if you translate that from afrikaans it's like a dummy pass so you had to carry this as a black person and if you were seen in any place Without that card, you would get beaten and you'd go to prison. And so it became very violent towards, I'd say, probably between 1985 onwards into 1993. 1994 was, you know, when Nelson Mandela was released, our new elections, and he stepped into power. But what happened is there were all these political parties, the ANC, which was Nelson Mandela, the Pan-African Congress, which was much more of the fighter party. Um, and then there were obviously the opposing governments. And so they fought for our freedom. They fought, people like really put their lives on the line to say, I want to be seen as human and I deserve to be seen as human. And 1994, the transition happened from this oppressive system into what we live in now. And mm. what I do have to give South Africa credit for is we are one of a kind in the world. Uh, we're one of the only countries in the world that has transitioned so peacefully without a revolution. So it's a pretty, yeah, it was a pretty intense time. Yeah, wow. So... What year were you born? I was born in 1991. Okay. Yeah. yeah the same age yeah. as my older sister. I'm 1994. So yes. born and, yeah, your father was murdered. What? Let's yeah. pick up the story from there because obviously it comes with a lot of challenges through those last couple of years before the apartheid was um, yeah, transitioned. How? What was your childhood like? What can you remember? Yeah. So, I mean, my father was killed in 1992. And my father was an activist, so he was a very skilled driver. He was the right-hand man to the leader of the PAC, which is the Pan-African Congress. And what happened was they basically, Eugene de Kock's uh, team, set up an ambush for my father. 
and how it was reported was that terrorists were shot in a shootout because my father was referred to as a terrorist. And when you are terrorist, your family doesn't have the right to know how you were killed. They just know you were killed. And when my mom found this out, she had to identify his body. And because of the brutality of the way he was killed, uh, he was actually, all she could see was a piece of red fabric uh, on his skin because he was burnt alive. Um, and the ring, his wedding band had burst. So she saw a sliver of the wedding ring. And that's the only way she could identify him. And I think an important part to note is my dad was also only 25. I am now 31. And so I feel like I lived so much of my life in homage to him for the life he didn't get to experience. But in childhood, how that really manifested for me was I didn't really have any context, to be honest, from like coming into consciousness until around the age of nine. My childhood was very different because I had to go live with my great grandmother and I only met my mom when I was like around five, six. Um, but then when I finally came into the family fold, met my mother, started living with her, what happened was I realized the families around me didn't look like mine. So mm. I was like, wait, there's a mother, a son and me. Where, where's the rest of this accompaniment? Um, and what ended up happening was my mom bought a book it was called Into the Heart of Darkness by Jacques Poe. And in this book, um, I remember my mom saying, like, she pointed at a picture on the book and she pointed at the man who murdered my father and she said, this is the man who killed your father. And at nine, I was like, okay. Um, and I had so many questions, but what was more intriguing to me, what, what is in this book? Mm. And I remember one day getting this opportunity to actually see inside the book because I'd been eavesdropping and I was hearing people crying and screaming. And I was like, I need to know what's in this book. And I heard the page number. And so one day my mom left and I ran to the room and I opened it. And Cooper, what I saw was a picture of my dad's burnt body clutching a steering wheel and his eyes were protruding. And it was etched into my brain. Like I couldn't shift it. Yeah. And from the age of nine until around 16, I was highly anxious. I was depressed. Uh, and I channeled that into sports. So I became a really great athlete at that point. But one night, I remember just feeling like I was having a heart attack. I was like, oh, my gosh. And I went to my mom's room. She rushed me to the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, they kept me overnight. The following day, the doctor sat my mom and I down and he said, in my over 20 years of experience, I've never seen stress symptoms so severe in someone your age. Then he followed with the words, your body's killing you. And if you don't change what you're doing, you're going to die. And Cooper, to be honest with you, at that point, that felt like a dream. I was like, wow. oh my goodness, please let this end. I can't do this. And one day, a few weeks later, I remember walking from like training and I had this thought and the thought was, Eugene de Kock killed your father and now you're letting him kill you too. And that became the complete shift in my life. And I was determined to survive at that point. Wow. I, I don't even know where to, how to respond to that. That Like your childhood is something. I've had some guests recently. I've had some difficult upbringings. And you've by far just outweighed everyone. It's just I feel so much for you, your family. And yeah, it's so special, obviously, now the work you're doing to try and really bring difference to the world and make change in the world. And I'm sure your dad would be so proud of what you are doing now. Going through high school, what was school like for you? Was school something that you got to do? I know, yeah, what yeah. was school like, especially through this time when you're obviously experiencing these stress symptoms, you're 
body is killing itself. So the doctor says, um, yeah, what was school like? And then what happened once you did have that mindset shift? What yeah. did that look like? I mean, that's a great question. Uh, what was school like? To be honest, my schooling was pretty normal. Okay. Like I was a very private child. So I never really shared about my family. People perceived us in one way and I never corrected them. Um, because the one emotion I've always known I've hated was pity. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I don't want people to give me anything because they felt sorry. I wanted to earn my way in life. And so people never knew. Like people only found out about my story, including my teachers, when I had actually met my father's killer when I was 24 and it became worldwide news. And I remember it was so funny because people were just contacting me. They were like, yo, wait, what? <laughs> like, you know, your, know your dad is there. Like, you, what? Like, how is this even possible? This can like this makes no sense. How did you keep this from us? Because yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing you're about to say I didn't tell anyone until 24, and that must be such a hard secret to keep. And like yeah. because you didn't want the pity, like not that shame. That it's just like yeah, it's I can't imagine the emotions that must be felt to have to hide something like that. Yeah, I, you know what, it was so much more about just self-protection. Mm. I didn't want to tell anyone because then I knew I'd have to explain. Mm. And so because I didn't have a lot of the facts, even though I started researching very early on about my father's killer, who he was, how he did what he did, what happened, um, it was very much my thing. And I don't come from a family. I mean, a lot of people, I think, have experienced this where we're super open with emotion. So you kind of suck it up and move forward. Like mm. no one's stopping for you. This bus is moving. Like you're going to just suck it up. And I think that sucking it up is actually what led to my depression because it wasn't just in that part of my life that I was sucking it up. I was sucking up everything, any pain, any kind of emotion that was perceivably not positive was something that needed to be, you know, discarded and just mm. shoved down. And so that really became the way I lived. Wow. So school, what, what did you, while going through school, think your life was going to look like post-school? Did you have any visions yeah. for um, vocation, what you were going to do for work? Um, yeah, yeah. Where, were, you good, were you smart at school? Do you want to go to university? Yeah, talk me through the last few years of school where you thought life was going to go. Yeah, I mean, that's, I was smiling about it because I haven't thought about it in so long. And yeah, I always knew I was a storyteller. Mm. So that I always had. I always knew I wanted to make an impact in people's lives. That I always had. And um, the way I'm doing it now, I could have never pictured in a million years. And really what I wanted to do was be a war correspondent because I realized in South Africa, we've got 11 official languages, which comes with its own accent, its own background, its own culture. And what I realized very early on was that the people who articulated and spoke as they say, well, um, were the ones that were taken seriously. And those who spoke with an accent, it's not like, you know, the world is in love with the French and Spanish accent, but when it's a South African accent, especially in South Africa, people see you as illiterate. And I realized that people weren't being taken seriously and their plights weren't being taken seriously. And I realized this around the world, that how people tell their story defines if there's going to be aid, if people are going to be helped, if their stories will reach anyone. Mm. And so I wanted to become a CNN war correspondent and cover other people's stories. So I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. I knew I wanted to make an impact on humanity in some way. Uh, the way it's transpired, not so much. <laughs> Not so much the same in the way that I thought I'd do it, but very much the same in its DNA. 
Yeah, wow. I'm, I'm so excited to hear your journey through your 20s because mm-hmm. that upbringing obviously builds such a strong why and and it seems like until 24, a very hidden why almost. What did it look like when you finished school? How old were you? What was that next period? Let's say like 18 to when you meet your, um, your father's killer and how that, we'll, we'll catch up to that. What was that next period after school up until that and what led you to wanting to meet him and yeah, how'd that come about? Yeah. So between 18 and 24, uh, my family experienced heavy financial burdens. And so I knew that I wasn't going to get into university if I didn't get like a scholarship or something. However, I also knew that my family needed money. And so I needed to prioritize what was going to be the most important. And to me, my family's well-being was more important. And so I decided to go into the workforce. So I was doing promotions. I was doing, you know, modeling. I was just anything that was going to give me money. I was just out there hustling. Um, And, you know, thankfully I was making a decent living. I was helping my mom. I was helping the family. Uh, So I really thought about school and studying for like, okay, I'll do it when I get to this point where my family gets it together, you know? Um, And so I started enrolling for a journalism program that I could study from home around the age of 23. Um, which was ironic because as soon as I enrolled, kind of my life completely changed by then meeting my dad's killer. And how that came about was uh, my mom had gotten a call from the National Prosecuting Authority and they were doing these programs called Victim Perpetrator Dialogues. And apparently they couldn't find my mom for like five years, uh, which is ironic because my mom is like on Facebook all the time. (laughs) I was like, you didn't look on Facebook? Um, (laughs) But they finally reached her and I remember coming home one day from the gym and she said, I just got a call from the National Prosecuting Authority and they want to know if we'd like to meet Eugene. And Cooper, I remember taking a beat. Was he in prison or anything? He, he was, was in prison, yes. For war crimes or for... Uh, well, because apartheid wasn't considered a war, it wouldn't have been called a war crime, but he was in prison for 212 years on 89 charges of murder. Yeah. So, I mean, I took a beat... But I said yes immediately because it was, you know, that inner niggling that just knows if you don't do something, you're going to regret it forever. Mm. And I had that in that moment. And I said to my mom, I'm going. And she was like, if you guys don't go, I don't want to go. And I said, I don't know who else is coming, but I'm going. Yeah. So that's really how it led up to that point. Wow. Yeah. I'm just trying to like piece it all together. How that comes about in your head. Did you, when you thought you're going to see him, was it from a point of, potential forgiveness was a point of fuck you was it from i'm just like i can't imagine like how hard that would be mentally to get that call and then yeah and then i'm just trying to like wrap my head around so this guy was head of a party or was he kind of an enforcer for a political party that was trying to yeah uphold the apartheid movement yeah i love that question uh so basically with eugene he was the head of the police force okay so he was one of the highest rank police officials he reported directly to the president at that time um and at the like we'll get to this point the one that i want to make but really he wasn't some rogue agent just killing black people for fun you know and i think that is a very important thing to note Yeah, well, you know what, there's definitely, there was a structure that he was following. And I think that's the complexity about apartheid. 
it's it was so integrated into our DNA, mm. um, whether that be psychologically for the people of color or it was, you know, from a structural perspective for white South Africans. Mm. But it was such a well-structured machine, you know, from an engineering standpoint. Like, I marvel at how they managed to do it. Mm. Well, so, yeah, so they're doing that for years. It's come to, obviously, by this time, by your late 20s, been abolished. They've put a lot of people in prison who were withholding the cruel movement, which it was. So, yeah, you get that call. You decide, you know what, now I'm going to go face him. What was going through your head? What did that look like? Where, where yeah. did the meetup happen? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, from that moment, I said yes. And I and you did ask a question, actually, and you said, was it like from a place of forgiveness or like a fuck you? And the truth is, Cooper, I can't tell you. Hmm. I knew for sure that something was going to happen. I didn't know it was going to be forgiveness, if I'm being dead honest. Um, I felt like I'd gotten to a point in my life where I was just solid enough within myself to be able to do it. Hmm. That was really what it was. And so when we the day came, my whole family decided to go. So it was my grandfather, my mother, my two brothers, and myself. And we headed to the prison. So it's South Africa's biggest maximum security prison. And we got there and that's where I had anticipation. I was like, okay, it's going to be a prison. It's going to be silver, like cold, mm. you know. Um, but no, it wasn't. Uh, they led us to the prison, but they took us to the room where the guards have their dinner and lunches. And Cooper, it was actually a little eerie because... It felt like visiting an old relative. It was like decorated very much like your grandma's house would be decorated. So and it that. wasn't in some dodgy yeah. prison. It was in the nice so home. weird. And it had like tea and scones. I'm like, I guess we're That's having weird. scones. Um, wow. you know? uh, so that I think was the first jarring moment for me. Um, but after that, we sat down and we just kind of sat in formation. I started the long end of the table. And then it was my younger brother, my older brother, my grandfather, and then my mother ended this long side. And then it was two wardens of the prison and then um, the chief of the prison, I believe, other wardens. And then next to me was the priest on the shorter side and next to him was an empty chair for Eugene. And so they just said to us, Eugene will be in at any moment, please, you know, just when he gets in, we'll start. So we're talking amongst ourselves and I think I turned around first and Cooper, as if by like magic, the man was there. I didn't hear the chains. He was chained up. So I was like, how did I not hear, see anything, this man? He just appeared. And he's a massive man. Um, and I was just shocked. And the priest looked at us and he was like, okay, let's get started. And he introduced everyone, starting with my mom. And he said, that's Sandra, mama, widow of the deceased clinic, Masilo, mama. And Cooper, he leaned forward and he said, pleasure to meet you. And he leaned back. And with each and every one of us, he would lean forward and say, pleasure to meet you. And those are strange words, you know, coming from, yeah, especially wow. in that environment. And so my mom started with a line of questioning. She said, what happened to my husband? And so Eugene explained to us that they had sent an Ascari into my father's camp. So an Ascari is someone who's a turncoat. They're working for both sides of the government. And this man won over my father's trust. And he said to my dad, because my dad was so skilled at driving, and he was actually quite a good shooter. And so people were like, oh, he can keep himself safe and get people into the country who are going to help us, you know. And so they said, oh, no, just need you to go get some guys across the border and then drive them back. This was supposed to be three hours, four hours max. So my father drove with two other gentlemen in the car, including the Ascari. 
as they were nearing the bridge, the Snellsbreak Bridge, it was like an hour and a half away from where my dad was staying. Uh, Eugene de Kock was actually at the top of the bridge and he had set up four men on either side of the bridge. So about two minutes away, the Scari said, oh, I actually need to get out, but I'll meet you guys further ahead. And so he jumps out. My dad keeps on driving and the eight men start firing at my father's minibus. Eugene from the top of the bridge realized that it wasn't coming to a stop. So he ran down the bridge and he emptied out his magazine cartridge on my dad. When the car stopped and he still saw signs of life in the vehicle, he doused them all in fuel and he set them alight. So it was the first time we took in that much information and detail. And Cooper, it felt like someone had kicked me in the stomach, to be quite honest. And so the encounter continued. We spoke a little bit, you know, to each other. And at the end, my mom said, Eugene, I forgive you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and then my grandfather said it, my two brothers said it, and then it got to me. And that whole encounter, I couldn't say anything. And I said, hi, Eugene. And he looked at me and he said, hi. And I said, you know, I want to say I forgive you. But before I do, I need to ask you one question. And he looks at me and he goes, anything, what's that? And I say, I want to know, do you forgive yourself? Mm. And he looked at me and for the first time, because he's very stoic, he lost his composure and he said, every time people come here, that's one question I hope they never ask me. And he looked away and he wiped the side of his eye because it's yet come down. And he looked back at me and said, when you've done the things I've done, how do you forgive yourself? And Cooper, I started to sob. I just started crying and crying. And what surprised me in that moment was that I wasn't crying for myself. I was crying for this human being sitting in front of me. And I realized there was nothing I could do to take away his pain. And there was nothing he could do to take away mine. And so we ended the meeting. And I walked to him first because I was the closest. And I said to him, would you mind if I gave you a hug? And again, he looked at me confused. And he got up and he held me really tightly. And he said, I am so sorry for what I've done. And your father would have been so proud of the woman you've become. And in that moment, it wasn't lost on me that the same hands that we used to take away my dad were also the same hands that were used to comfort me. And so I left the prison and I decided to advocate for his parole. And a few months later, he received it because he wasn't eligible for parole. And that's really how the world ended up knowing about me and my story. I'm like so yeah. grateful that you have the strength to share that and articulate in the way you do. I'm sure okay. the, your 16-year-old self who realized that to articulate your story is one of the best ways to be able to tell a story and actually make impact and you do it unbelievably well thank you um i'm trying to think where i want to go with this next part of question you because there's so many places because what you mentioned when you got sick when you were in your um late teens by saying you said before that the man who killed your dad was also killing you in a different way do you think by getting to see him and getting to do that, that was a way for you to kind of move forward and being able to apologize for him? So, so let's talk about that. So you say you advocated for his parole. parole I'm like so bad with prison system and stuff. Does parole means he can get out of prison? But if he's killed 80 people, surely it's yeah, 89. that many life sentences. Mm. So you'd never be able to get out. Yeah. Yes, or, yeah. Yeah. So it's actually very interesting. Um, with so well, there's a number at once yes okay. so well 
technically um there's so many complex parts of this oh, yeah, because yeah. i think a lot of people are asking themselves they're like we love the fact that you forgave that's great yeah. but there were also 88 other people that were murdered mm-hmm. right and that wasn't lost on me when i advocated for his parole and for me it was unjust and the reason it was unjust was an adverts and an open letter in my advocacy and in this open letter i stated that the current party that runs south africa is called the african national congress the one nelson mandela was elected under and a part of the party's you know referendum or constitution is that the enemy is only the person who continues to support the previous system and we cannot hold people to account for the sins they committed in their past under a different mm. regime and so i pointed that out but then another parallel that i thought was so vital was Eugene de Kock was not a manic killer on the loose. Yeah. He operated for a system and the man who gave him his commands received the Nobel Peace Prize. The man who pulled the trigger on his behalf received life imprisonment and to me that did not seem just. And so I think that in and of itself drawing on those parallels is exactly what ended up getting him released because wow. I think so many people kind of saw it from a different perspective and said Hey, like are we going to punish soldiers that went to war? Like we don't do that. We don't arrest soldiers when they come back from war for the crimes they committed in war. What he was doing is right? disgusting as it was. Yeah, the way that you can have that perspective and that empathy is maybe the deepest empathy I've ever heard and I'm sure that's why your story became such a big story is because of that empathy that most people can't relate to. Let's talk about that next chapter when you do advocate what does that look like to get his release what sort of media attention did that draw and yeah what was this next period like once this happened you'd start into study journalism yeah. dare i say your career probably skyrocketed very quickly what was that yeah. next period of your life like because i'm sure it came with a wow. lot of contempt as well yeah. from people especially yeah. the 88 other families Yeah, I mean my life became a complete storm. Mm. Um as soon as the minister, uh, the police minister had announced that Eugene was released, my name was completely intertwined with that and it was so interesting because I was like, okay, I guess this is how when people google me for the rest of eternity, this is who I'm going to be linked with, you know. But I have no regrets about that. I think that for me there was so much conviction that i had in what i did and there's also a care and concern i hold for eugene i feel very responsible i feel as though if he went out and decided to commit atrocities it falls on my shoulders mm. i'm responsible and so i took it with a lot of responsibility yeah, yeah. i didn't do it lightly big thing to do at 24 25 too yeah yeah and for me it came with I mean it was a very mixed bag. I got a lot of death threats. I received so much hatred. But the hatred I received wouldn't have been from the people you thought. Uh the people you think are the people that were direct victims to him. Mm. Those are the people. Those people ironically didn't really say anything and the families that did reach out were very understanding. And they said, "You know what? It is what it is. We lived in a terrible time." Mm. Whereas the people who were never impacted never knew him on a personal level they were outraged and so i was all the ones that felt guilt because they were the ones who somewhat supported the movement back then you know i mean they're the ones who you know it's him actually, going to prison felt like a bit of soothing for their soul ironically cooper it wasn't actually i didn't experience a lot of hatred from my people i experienced a lot of support and outpouring of understanding they were like wow mm. i felt so guilty for so long and just hearing you 
it yeah. makes me feel so much lighter. Thank you. Wow. And so I didn't get a lot of hatred. I actually got a lot more black hate. Okay. People were very angry at me and I was called a sellout. I, people assumed I got paid for it. Like there was a whole bunch of theories, mm. lots of death threats, lots of, you know, the R word threats. Um, and my family was really fearful for me for a period of time. And they were like, maybe you should withdraw. And I remember just saying to my mom one day, like, if this is where my time on earth ends, I am not doing it on my knees. I said what I said and I stand by it. Um, so that really shifted that, but that started to wear off. Um, but what didn't wear off was around the world, I think for two and a half weeks, I was on the news somewhere. Like I'm speaking about China, I'm speaking about New York, like everywhere in the world, I was on the news. And in the last couple of interviews, you can hear my voice is gone. I'm just like croaking it through. Um, and it was so interesting because I just remember thinking, okay, I know how the media works. I'm going to be on the news cycle, then I'm going to be forgotten. That's just how it's going to be. And I was okay with that. And then one of the vice chancellors of one of our prominent universities, Professor Jonathan Janssen, he said to me, Candace, hey, please, could you just do one keynote and get this over with? Then you're done. And I remember being like, oh, cool, you know? And I did this keynote, Cooper, and it changed my life because when it got to Q&A, I remember person after person, to this day, I still get chills. The first person stood up and they said, this is not a question, but when I was five years old, this happened to me and I've never told anyone. Thank you for sharing and giving me power to share. And it just started rolling. And people were sharing some of the most traumatic things in a room of like 100 people. And I just started sobbing. And in my soul in that moment, I said, this is what I have to do. And so that's really how the journey began. And I became a speaker, writer, and yeah, how I got here right now. Wow. See, I'm glad. No, I mean, I feel like I should have researched more, but I'm glad I yeah. didn't because you said if I typed in your name on Google, I would have obviously found all of this. So I'm glad that I got to do that yeah. rather than open with you. are so influential because you did this. I'm glad that it yeah. built up to it without, um, without just throwing it down your face. I'm so grateful that you've shared all, um, yeah, this buildup of your story. So you do a keynote, your keynote, is it around like forgiveness and around your story, kind of like what we've spoken about? Pretty much. It was just telling the story. It yeah. wasn't even what I'd consider a keynote at that point. I was just like, there's no start, middle or end. This is just yeah. the story. Just <laughs> there's yeah. no key takeaways. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to be like, forgive. You yeah, know, yeah. like I'm just like, so yeah, this is it guys. You know, so it wasn't really a keynote at that point. It's developed into one, mm. but at that time it was just an open sharing and I felt so much responsibility because I realized the privilege I had to share a story that so many people experienced but not were not heard. Mm. And the fact that I had the opportunity platform to not speak for myself. Every time I do a keynote, I speak first for my father and then I speak next for my people. So I feel like it is definitely an opportunity for people to have a deep understanding of what people went through in my country. Mm. Well, yeah, it's so important to hear these stories and understand like this isn't like ancient history. This isn't even modern history. This is like 20 years ago. Like this is so recent that it's important that we do understand. And there's still like I can imagine I actually had a um, – this is going slightly off topic. I have this guy on episode 101 who works for this company, Project Rescue Children, um, and like their child trafficking and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much stuff that goes on in the world that – 
I mean, me sitting here in Australia is so sheltered too. And like, I've been to South Africa quite a few times and I've mm. seen the, even still the segregation and the um, the judgment and the, the way that white people do treat um, people who are black in Africa still to this day. So like the impact that your words, your movement and your actions have, have I'm sure have had on so many is just profound and you should be so proud. I'm sure your dad would be as well. Thank you. So let's talk about this next chapter, 25 to 30, where, um, yeah, where have you been speaking and, and what's the main message that you are trying to get across? What does forgiveness mean to you now? Mm. You know, I think it's so important to realize, and I, for me, forgiveness is an element of my story, but what I've learned is it's really how we tell our stories, Cooper. Each and every person listening to this is not going to experience the things I experienced. But I think the first and most important thing is to realize that none of us are in the pain Olympics. You know, the fact that I, my arm is cut off and you having internal organ failure, I'm not in less pain because I know you are suffering more than I am. We are probably in equal amounts of pain right now, you know, and me saying like, I'm not going to feel this pain because you're going through more pain is like saying... I'm not going to, you know, eat the sandwich because you are like, you know, you are hungry on the other side of the world. Mm. Like me eating a sandwich is not going to impact you. Me not eating a sandwich is not going to impact you. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's first and foremost, the most important thing. And then the next thing that I hope people take away from any talk that I do is you are the victor of your story. You're not the victim to it. And when we live our lives re-traumatizing ourselves, that's really when we tell ourselves our stories over and over. Because when it happens, that's the first point of impact. But when you relive it, you're re-traumatizing yourself again and again and again. And it's so important for us to realize that this happened to me, but it's not who I am. Mm. And the fact that I'm still standing, still moving, still doing, still being kind, still doing all these things in the world means I'm a victor. I can stand with my head held high and be like, that thing was supposed to break me and it didn't. Mm. And if that couldn't break me, nothing will. I am built to do hard things and I keep doing hard things. And that is a victor's mentality. And so for me, outside of everything, it is about acknowledging you. We don't do that enough. We don't give ourselves enough credit. We don't stand on what we've overcome enough. And that is what I hope people take away. And so the last five years has really been around that. I do a lot of keynotes around the world. I've done like New York University, Columbia. I've done, you know, so many different organizations around the world. Snapchat that we hear for in Byron Bay. Um, and for me, it's never just about saying forgive. I think the story speaks for itself. You choose to forgive, you choose to do it. But it is about, do you see yourself? Do you congratulate yourself? Are you aware of how far you've come? Are you kind to yourself? Because if you cannot give yourself all these things, it's going to be so hard for you to give it to others. Mm. And you will have limited capacity in how you give it to others. And so for me, it's just write your own story, man. Like take the pen. You, you are writing the script of your story every day. And is it going to be from a victim's mentality of bad things always happen to me? I'm always in this. If that's what you're telling yourself, you're probably going to be in that for a while. But if you just choose to say, look, today I just want to get 1% better. Mm. I just want to get just a little bit, just move forward a little bit. And realize that you have infinite opportunity in front of you. And life is incredibly finite. Mm. So just do you and be good to you yeah. and everything else will change. Oh, I love 
everything you just said and you would have been laughing because I spoke to you before we started. I told you about my keynote. Yeah. I talk about the hero and the victim and here we go. I've never heard of the victor and the victim. Um, yeah. That's great. And I think that's, and I like as well how you, this just came to me while you were saying that this idea of like, you can be the victor or the victim. And it's about these 1% and it's like every day we can be the victor or the victim. Do you go to bed tonight? Were you the victor or the victim today? What ran your thoughts more often than not? Was it on the victim or did you do those little things that brought you ahead towards your goal more in the direction towards that internal compass of our values and our morals and our real beliefs where we truly want to be? That's one thing. And the second thing that you said, once again, is very in line with what I've been talking about a lot, a lot recently, this idea of being proud of what you do. But, and I like that you yeah. brought that up because I saw a um, therapist for the first time about three or four weeks ago now Amazing. just because I wanted to go through a few things yeah. and the thing that we unlocked was the fact that I'm big on gratitude always grateful I'm always looking and being appreciative but he said to me it's amazing what the work because I, I just felt like I'm a bit disconnected a little bit with the work I'm doing I'm doing so much like you said to me before like so cool you're doing all this stuff but I just felt this like slight disconnect with I don't know it was a bit weird and the um, psychologist said to me he's like it sounds like you're so grateful, but are you really proud of what you're doing? And that was the time when I sat there and went, sitting and being grateful, I feel like is like a five minute thing, but sitting and being proud is a like an embodied thing. Like, yeah, you know what? I'm pretty proud of the stuff I've done. And it takes that introspection to actually feel that rather than it just be like, oh yeah, I'm grateful. It's yeah. like, am I proud? But yeah, it relates so much to both of those angles that you were talking about then. I love that. And you know, I think it's so important, Cooper, to realize that we're constantly in this race with ourselves, right? We constantly feel like we should be somewhere other than where we are. And regardless of how much you do in the world, you always think, I could have done more. I should be here. I should be there. And I think what it really does when you are proud of where you're moving, you're like, hey, like I'm getting better. I'm making the world a better place in my way, in my corner of the world where I am. Mm. And that to people is different. Someone is making the world a better place by being a great mother right now. Someone else is making the world a greater place by, you know, creating the next big technological revolution. And I don't think either one of those should be minimized based mm. on, oh, you know, this person's going to impact billions and this one's going to impact one life. Because it's so important to realize that all these social media platforms are not reality. Mm. Not everyone wants a mega yacht. Some people just want to be happy on a farm, yeah. you know, and it's okay for us to get those moments where we're like, man, everything's going right, but I'm not feeling good. Mm. And the fact that you could go to therapy and I go to therapy every week, it's so important. It's such a reflective space mm. because what it does is it's a non-judgmental person giving you perspective on you. Mm. in a way that you could never do and those you love you couldn't do because yeah. there's always a vested interest right so that's, that's like the psych said to me is like going to a psychologist is speaking to your friends and your internal group is like trying to read the outside of a jar but you're all locked inside the jar it's like I you can't read that. the label on the outside from inside the jar and i was like oh that's a good one you like that one? Good, i love it? that that's the people brilliant. in your jar can't read the label but like, from the outside that. you get that perspective oh beautiful and, and i love that you said the idea of um yeah, we can't change. This is, once again, you're hitting all my nails on the head. So my new merch collection, which I just gave you a few pieces mm -hmm. of, I was like, once again, sitting there one day going, oh, what's the point? I can't change the world. But then I started to think, well, our goal should never be to change the world. No one can change the world, but we can change our world. So my collection is called the Change Your World Collection. So 
you walk past someone that says, what are you grateful for? They might, you, they might not even say something to you, but subconsciously they think, oh, I'm grateful for this or be kind to your mind. It's that little subconscious. So sure, we might not be able to change the world, but with my merch, hopefully someone walks past and like the one you're looking at me now, the little good in the mind, it's like, oh, I should have good in my mind. Like these little mm. subtle things, they're not going to change the world, but it can change your world, which can make you go to bed feeling like you're the victor of the day. You've actually had that impact on your community, which yeah, is so important. Yeah, and it's important to realize that, as you said, none of us can really change the world, mm. right? And for me, I always say to people, when people, you know, will write to me these kind messages, like, you changed my life, or this mm. changed my life. Or my, and I always say, you changed your life. By listening to my life. Yeah, yeah. like, I'm just a spark. Mm. That's all I will ever be in anyone's reality except my own. And in anyone's story, I'm simply a catalyst. And you can choose to be catalyzed by the information you're receiving, or you could choose to stay the same. And when we put the burden of responsibility to change others on ourselves or to change the world, we will always feel like we're failing. But if we just put the responsibility on ourselves to say, I just want to be a spark, that's it. Spark someone's dreams, spark someone's thoughts, spark the fact that you can be kind to yourself, change your world. And those kind of things, I think, should be the focus mm. to say, Will I change the world? Will I change one life? Will I change a million lives? I don't know. But will I be a spark that changes the way someone thinks? That I know I'll do, you know? Wow. I needed to hear that just then. That was very succinctly put. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's so We have such similarities, I think, in the way we think and see the world, which is just so beautiful. And one thing that we do have in common, I'd like to say, hopefully from myself and I know from yeah. you as well, is kindness. And that's yes. you spoke about kindness as humankind, yeah? Yes, yeah. I did. But let's talk about kindness and what kindness means to you. Oh, man, this is one of my favorite topics. So as one of the co-CEOs of AIM, uh, what we're really doing is we're targeting projects that are meaningful to also spark change in the world. And my key project is kindness economics. And what I love about kindness economics, and that's why I was so fascinated by you speaking about it too, is the fact that I feel like kindness is something that people take so for granted mm. because it's this thing that we kind of put in a candy floss coating, right? We're like, oh, be kind, you mm. know? But what does it mean? What's the action of kindness? How do we feel when people are kind to us? How do we feel when we're kind to others? And to me, really, my mission at the moment is to make people realize that when you put people at the center of any organization system economic structure that's when life changes and that's what kindness is it's saying to people i see you i hear you i value you that's what kindness is it's an action it's not passive mm. you're not just vibrating kindness necessarily but when we realize that kindness is one of the things that i believe will save humanity Kindness, I believe, is going to save the planet because when you are a kind human being, you are walking a very different vibration to people who are mean-spirited. When we have this as a quantifiable value in society and people know the metrics of it, I think that people will realize, I want a kind home. I want a kind working environment. And when we start with those small things, guess what? We're going to litter less. We're going to take care of our environment. We're not going to take more than we need. We're not going to be over consuming everything. Mm. You'll be like, hey, I said I wanted to make $10 million. Why am I rushing for 100? What do I need $100 million for? Because the world is currently being governed by greed. Mm. The, you just want more, 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 more excessiveness, right? You were speaking about the consumption. And we just want to consume, consume, consume. 
and kind of says, I don't need to consume more than what I need. Mm. And that's what it is, you know? And I actually want to hear your take on kindness. Yeah, I'd love to share it because it, it very well lines up with exactly what you're saying once again. So I break kindness when I speak about it in my keynotes into three categories, being kind to yourself, being kind to others and being kind to the environment. Mm. The way I speak about being kind to yourself, there's obviously millions of things that we can do from all different self-development stuff, from meditation, gratitude. There's so many things, but the one I touch on firstly is our breath. Being kind to ourselves is being yeah. conscious of our breath. Are we breathing through our nose or are we breathing through our mouth? I don't know how much research you've done in your mm -hmm. breath, but breathing through our nose is far better for us physiologically. Are we breathing into our chest or are we breathing to our body? Mm -hmm. This is a simple act of kindness that we can do for ourselves, which is free. Am I breathing through my nose to my belly or through my mouth to my chest? That's being kinder to yourself by just breathing in a way that's easier, that's better for us. So that's the first one. Being kind to others is just obviously so important. And it's funny, kindness... Um, is now so, like there's so much great data out there that shows that kind of people are happier people yet we're not getting forced this at school because obviously no one's making money from it so i encourage people and it's it's funny like when we're kind to somebody not only does it make the person we're kind to feel good but it makes us feel good it's releasing mm -hmm. serotonin and oxytocin in our own brain mm -hmm. so it's funny when we're kind to someone it's i think it's something like 70 percent of us when somebody offers us a gift a compliment we go oh no 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 and try and block it we feel undeserving but that's blocking a chance for somebody to be kind. So the more that we can open this yeah. conversation of when somebody does something kind to you, as hard as it is, 70% of us feel this way, all you got to say is thank you. How do we learn to accept kindness more? Because then it allows people to give more kindness. So that's number two. And number three is being kind to the environment. And I tell this story because I think you'll like this. Kindness as a value is something more than something in your head. It's something that you embody. And I used to pick up a bit of rubbish on the beach. I'd throw it in the bin, look around. Did anyone see me do it? Kind of embarrassing, but that's just kind of how I was. I didn't live by values when I was younger. It was ego-driven. Am I looking good? And now I know being kind to the environment, throwing rubbish in the bin, I know it's releasing happiness chemicals in my brain now because being kind to the environment truly matters to me. Mm -hmm. I don't care if anyone sees me do it. I throw rubbish in the bin. It makes me feel good. So that's what kindness means to me is knowing that it's more than just like you said before, this platitude of kindness is like, how do we embody kindness? Mm. Do we do it because it looks good or do we bec mm. because it feels good? And that's where I'm trying to find my kindness now is not just doing it because it makes someone else feel good, make, doing it because we know now the science shows it makes us feel good by doing more kind things. But yeah, mm. hopefully that oh, kind of gives I you a good little three-prong approach that I quantify kindness in for myself. Oh, I love it. And you said two things that I just want to point out that I think are so powerful uh, the first one is how difficult it is for us to receive. Mm. And I think someone actually helped me change my own paradigm around it. And they said, when you decline a good offering from someone, whether that be a compliment, a gift, whatever it is, what you're really doing is you are terminating that person's ability to gift you. So you are depriving that human being of being able to feel good. By giving. Feel good have that energy and so you're not only being unkind to them you're being unkind to yourself too mm. so no one wins in that situation and i know as women especially we experience this where people will compliment us and we have a justification for the compliment mm. it's like oh you look great oh i got this at the garbage bin on the side of the street <laughs> and all of a sudden you're in a soliloquy about the dress i mean you know and i think just learning to say thank you and keep quiet Hard, thank you have to get better at it. right and it's that for me i believe in feminine masculine energy and both of them are beautiful within all of us and 
feminine energy is receptive energy but in order to be in feminine energy you need to feel safe mm. and i think so many of us are in our masculine energy which is the action get do blah 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 um and so when we don't feel when we can't receive kindness or anything i genuinely believe it's because we're feeling unsafe in our own bodies mm. and that's what i love about your first point about gift yourself you know like that breathing are you kind to you are you treating yourself well mm. are you putting good things into your body you know like i know you've been alcohol free which i think is amazing and and that's an act of kindness when mm. i think of it i'm like yeah is alcohol doing great things in my body no exactly <laughs> it really isn't and it's an unkind action to myself and other people would look at it and say but having a glass of wine with someone i love is kind to me exactly. so it's definitely not a judgment it's just saying like consciousness is the most important thing i think in kindness mm, yeah just an awareness uh, that might have been my favorite in like 105 episodes my favorite little 10 minute segment i think getting to talk to someone else who gets off on kindness it's uh it's amazing but i want to go to my last little segment with you and that's aim do you want to explain what AIM is, I guess, yes. to the listeners? I know what it is, obviously, but if you want to explain what AIM is, how you became to become involved with them and, yeah, your role with them and where you see that going moving forward. Absolutely. Um, another conversation I love. Um, no, so AIM is – we started off as a mentoring institution that helped Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders kids get their mentors and get them in, into college university and now aim has really expanded we're now a research lab that is focused on creating sustainable solutions to some of the world's largest issues and how we're doing that is we're creating systematic levers so we've got to leave off peace we've got uh environmental one we've got kindness so there's so many of those that we're working on and what we're doing is we're really launching into research projects and partnering with reputable organizations to carry the research with us and what we really want to do and this is my aim and objective at aim because i run the kindness initiative is really to get this measured to such a degree that the world economic forum cannot ignore it you know, the world at large, the United Nations can't ignore it. Because if we have, if we gather all this data that you were talking about and we really put it into spaces, so our case studies are festivals like Humankind. That was one of our big case studies. Uh, we've got Sunrise Festival. I'm about to go to Europe to team up with more festivals. So we're doing them around the world. You're on Park Life in Park Life? Park Life in Manchester in June. I don't know. I'm going to be there watching Fisher. Oh, yeah. you know. Thank you for the hookup. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let me know. We are going to talk. Come, I, come I want to come. In June. Let me know. I'm come doing all of this, Cooper. I'm taking you up. And we've got photographic and video evidence. Yeah, um, <laughs> I got it. I got it. I love that. Yeah, that would be amazing. But really what we do in these festivals is not only are we rewarding people for kindness because we have a VIKP program, which is a very important kind person. I love that. And what I love about that is it really says to humanity, have we gotten so far as human beings that the only value of a man, a human being, a person is how much they make? Do we not value the person who takes care of 10 kids that aren't their own? Do we not value the woman who has to carry water to her village? Do we not value the person who's babysitting for free because they know someone's going through things? And the VIKP program is saying, very important kind people are VIPs and we are going to measure this consistently over the next 10 years because aim for those of for those people who don't know we have an intentional death date which means that the organization is going to cease to exist in 10 years and we're going to open source everything we've learned and what I love about this is that it eliminates greed 
Mm. We're working towards an end. Yeah. And I think the beauty of that is I'm a, I believe in a lot of Stoic philosophy, memento mori, memento vivere, which is remember you're going to die. Mm. So remember to live. And so this is one of the big reasons I came on board with AIM. But real reason I came on board with AIM is because of Jack Manning Bancroft, the founder of AIM. I met him about four or five years ago in South Africa. And he asked the mutual acquaintance of ours if he could do an interview with me. And I so strongly believe in intuition because I'd just flown in from a long haul flight from New York. And the last thing I wanted to do was an interview. But my soul just said, go. I went, I met Jack and the team at the time. And they interviewed me. A few weeks later, he asked if he could use my interview as a mentorship program. I said, sure. And we just kind of kept in touch. And I think there's always been so much mutual respect there. I've always respected what Jack has done. I've respected the fact that he's gone to the beat of his own drum in order to affect change and be a cog in the wheel of change. And so when I was taking a sabbatical last year, I just contacted him and I was like, we've wanted to work together for so long. What's good? What's up? Um, and that's how we ended up really getting me on board and me doing the work we do. Wow. I'm excited to see the work that you continue to do with them and Thank you. the future of the work. Yeah. Just that you do getting to share your story, inspire people to learn to forgive, to learn what kindness is and just to learn to be a good human. You've been an absolutely perfect mm. guest for the Good Human Factory <laughs> podcast. Um, I'll have to chat to you off air, but it'd be great to have you as an ambassador. My ambassador program doesn't involve doing anything other than your name being on the website that I see you as a good human and giving you merch because yeah, I am now the ambassador. <laughs> you're, the, you're the best. My first South African ambassador. Woo! <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's been incredible sharing your story. I can't thank you enough for your time, for your friendship from, although we've only met a few times, yeah. I feel like we're probably pretty close friends just from, um, yeah, you have those connections with people where you know you're on a similar level and you both want something out of the world that is a bit different to maybe the status quo who are just trying to survive, which is a scary thing nowadays. I feel like we're lucky we're in a place where we can really try and thrive and help other people thrive, which is what I think you're really doing. But from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. I do finish every Good Humans podcast with the same question and I'm very excited to hear your answer to this. So the last question is, what does being a good human mean to Candace Mama? Oh my goodness. Um, Before I even answer that, I just want to just say how honored I am to be on your platform. I have so much respect for the work you do in every arena. How you show up for the world, I think is your greatest gift. And just getting to talk to you, this was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. You're so thoughtful, you really invested. And I think it speaks to your character as a human being from the time we've met. You're just such a good human. Um, Minus and- <laughs> the fact that I didn't do any research, but I'm just very no, curious. You know what? I think that's <laughs> Once brilliant. You do enough interviews, you can just right? talk where That's you the best talk. part because we just got to lean on our friendship, to lean on the conversation. And I think it went amazing. And so it leads me to what is a good human. I think a good human is someone who wakes up every day and they just have a sense of duty to themselves and a sense of duty to those around them to just show up in the best way, to be kind, to do good and not harm. I think all of us are going to disappoint someone at some point in our lives. So the aim is never to be perfect, but the aim is to be good. It's to Mm. be kind. It's to be better than you were yesterday. And also the biggest part about being a good human is being a good human being to yourself, Mm. showing up for you. Because I know this is such an overused saying, but You cannot give what you do not have. So if you are not good to you, it's going to seep out 
Mm. We are going to know it. You can try and put on all the good acts in the world and be a philanthropist and throw money at things, but we feel it. We feel authentic spirits when we meet them. Mm. And if you are not taking care of your soul, if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not looking at yourself in the mirror and going, you know, I... I am not too bad. I'm doing quite good, okay? And if you are not your biggest cheerleader, and that's work, that's effort, that's time, but it's work worth doing because Mm. the more you invest in yourself, the better of a human being you are to everyone around you and to all of us who get to experience you. So essentially for me, that is what being a good human is. I absolutely love that. Isn't that funny? Pride gets like quite a bad name, but I think pride's an important trait to have if it's used right, but... Yeah, thank you so much for everything. I want to give you a hug. Thank yes. you. Yes. Let's hug it out. Thank you. Oh. oh, you're the best. You're the best. This was amazing. Let me finish oh. quickly. If anyone yes. wants to find you on socials, um, it will yes. all be in the show notes. But anything you've got coming up, anything you want to plug right now, now's your little chance so people can get in contact or find the work amazing. that you do. Thank you. Uh, so the first place I want everyone to go to as soon as they leave the podcast is aimmentoring.com. Go to a mentoring, just see what we are doing over there. I think so many people, we the best kept secret, I always mm. say, and that's because Jack does not subscribe to social media, so the organization's not on any social media platform. So go ahead, amentoring.com. On a personal level, if you want to find me, it is Candice, C-A-N-D-I-C-E, underscore mama, M-A-M-A. That's on every other platform, literally every platform. Mm. And yes, that's really my surname. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to before we started recording. Mama, great surname. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure for coming on Good Humans Podcast. Oh, what an honor, Cooper. Thank you.